Good morning, everybody. This is Iron Radio yet again. Uh, this is Phil Stevens. I am a strength coach and Highland Games athlete, power lifter. And I might be doing Ed Cohn's meet in May. So I talked to him about that this weekend. So Ooh. I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure yet, but I think I might be doing that. So. Epic. <clears throat> this is Dr. Mike Nelson, associate professor with the Kerrigan Institute, uh, online instructor for Rocky Mountain University, Walsh University. And yeah, just had a PR for kiteboard jump yesterday here, 17.7 feet. And I didn't piss myself, so I was happy. <laughs> where, are you, where are you at right now? I'm in South Padre, Texas. So oh, okay. Was, hey. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's snowing here, so. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been nice. It was super windy. Uh, I actually did it on my small kite, my nine meter. And yeah, super fun day. Had some, some good rides so far this trip. This is Coach Durrell out of Kansas City, um, strike field in Kansas City, or Casey. Um, Weightlifting coach, uh, dabbled in virtually every strength sport, and I uh, was a CrossFit gym owner for a long time, like 10 years in gym ownership or adjacent. Ah, Aren't you a gym owner again now? <laughs> yep. You <laughs> 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 made it as a past <laughs> thing only. <laughs> No, right, right back in. He so. tries to get out, and it sucks him right back that's in. Right, you can't get out. <laughs> that, that's more or less the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I can't escape. So, yeah, and uh, we're going to talk about. We had a good time. We're going to. We got some listener questions here in a bit, but uh, a bunch of us headed down to the Swiss, so figured we'd uh, shoot the shit about that. Tell everybody what went on. It was a good day or a good weekend, I guess. Uh, me and Jarrell and Matt drove down together and had to get there early to help set up. So, cause I hauled in all the backdrops and banners and things like that and shirts. But, uh, I don't know. I think to me it was a resounding success. For somebody that's never been to Swiss, I think it went well. Um, they had, what was it? Five, five rooms going at one time? I think. Yeah. So there's two. No, big rooms. It would have, yeah, two big and the three. Yeah, so it would have been five, five rooms. Three smaller rooms. So they had a big, like, strength training room, a big nutrition room, and then it was like a business room, a rehab room, and something else. Um, so as an attendee, you kind of had to pick and choose because there's five talks going on at the same time, uh, which room you wanted to go to. I was lucky in the fact that I was the first person to volunteer to help, and I kind of got the uh, – to pick what room I got to run. So I picked the strength training room, of course. <laughs> so I was stuck in there with Windler and Cone and uh, all those guys. But uh, it was a good time. <laughs> oh, it was just, it was, it was horrible. Yeah. Uh, no laughs were had, I'm sure. No, not at all. So <laughs> it went good. I mean, you could see, I mean, you, you could tell what people were interested in. Like, oddly enough, well, everybody, like, what was the first room? It was winning. Not winning. And packed. Like, it was standing room only in that Oh, work. wow. And, of course, everybody that he's like, how many people here are strength coaches? 
let's say there's 150 people in the room, like everybody raised their hand. Uh, oh wow! So, but he then on? he was talking on the squat. You know, he just oh, broke okay. on the squat. Apparently, his talk was originally going to be on the deadlift, but then there ended up being like three other people talking about deadlift, so mm. they didn't want to do that. Uh, so he just did the squat and talked about it for a bit, and then came up and changed people. You know, just had people come up and demonstrate what they're doing, and uh, you know, just correct form. Cool. A little bit about assistance work, and then, uh, but anyways, what I was getting at, you, you had like tons of people for that, and then Windler's talk had much less, and it was literally about how to coach football teams. Uh, hmm. But uh, it was just targeted at you could tell the people that were like football coaches, which was great. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and Windler's talk was real good. He was nervous as shit, but uh, really, yeah, he was like shaking. Before, <laughs> but it's because he's so. I think it's because he's so damn passionate about yeah. kids and stuff. Like he was getting emotional during talk, but uh, yeah, it was good, you know. And the whole weekend was good. So Ed Cohn's talk, he just did. Uh, I was talking to him before, and he's like, "I'm not going to talk at all. I'm just automatically taking people and bringing them up here and fixing shit." So he spent the whole time just fixing, fixing things, hands on. I assume oh. for like squat bench dead or something. Yeah. Yeah, mainly squats, but, uh. Oh, okay. And, uh. No, they had it good, set up good. Like every room, Elite FTS just packed the place with equipment. So even the nutrition room had like a squat rack in it. So there was oh, nice. squat racks in all the rooms, um, on raised platforms. They all had plates. Uh, like on DeFranco's talk, they brought in, his was all about sled work. And, uh, they brought in a ton of sleds so people could, you know, work on prowlers. Nice. And you so saw it pretty well attended. DeFranco's thing, yeah, super well attended. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. They made a change after day one. So DeFranco <clears throat> day one, and what we had going on a bit was uh, they were just opening it for questions during the talk, which mm. worked great for Windlers because it was all about just coaching football teams, and he yeah. wanted interaction with these coaches and stuff. Uh, but then you had like DeFranco's, and he came in with the plan of I'm gonna hit 11 points on. Probably. Oh, that's what's harder to so do. So many questions because they only have an hour. Yeah, yeah. There were so many questions. He only got to like four of them. Oh. So, <laughs> so on day two, they started telling their presenters that no questions until you're done. Yeah. Uh, and it ran better, you know. Or they get as a presenter pick because some people like it, and some people don't, and some people just aren't used <laughs> to taking the questions and getting through ten points. You know. It's exactly. And there was a how lot you prepare. That. There was a lot on day one that they just weren't making it through their stuff, which, I mean, I suppose was great for the one or – there was usually two to four individuals asking all the questions. Mm. So those two to four individuals were getting everything they wanted out of it, but yeah. <laughs> limiting what the other 150 people in the room wanted to hear. So they kind of changed one that. One question per person, Max. <laughs> yeah, and it – uh, well, you just noticed that – and. Like it's hard to cover a lot of stuff in an hour. An hour seems like a long time, but oh, it goes just, by it's so gone. fast. It is gone. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> but talking to people that came, I mean, everybody seemed super happy in in what went on. Oh, good. Windler had his first booth at any event, and uh, nine people ran it. It did well. So they had, I guess, this was the first time for an expo type thing at a Swiss. So. Uh, that seemed to go well. They had probably, I don't know, 15 different booths of stuff, um, with people. We were the only ones selling apparel and books and things. 
Really? That's kind of surprising. So, yeah, so we were able to cash in because people wanted shirts and stuff. So it was like, well, yeah. I'll buy those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, our booth did uh, surprisingly well. And then a lot of books, of course, after Windless Talks, people were coming to buy the books and things. But um, What room were you in, Drell? I don't even remember. You were in the business room, right? <clears throat> yeah, so the first day it was like business talks. Um, and I, I mean, it, I don't know. It, it kind of was, I mean, it was related to business, but like the first talk was, uh, it was like, it was about supplements and like, you know, it's kind of like an ethics, almost ethics of selling supplements. But the pitch was more about like, man, I want to say maybe he had some stuff like a supplement company. So the pitch was almost like for his company. But he was talking about how essentially that, you know, because he was talking about, like, COVID stuff for the most part. Gotcha. And, like, being able to, like, confidently sell, you know, COVID-type supplements in your in your business. Like, I don't know, I'd maybe describe it as, like, unapologetically. Like, you, you shouldn't feel bad for it or something like that. Gotcha. Um, and let's do a few of those. The next day, though, was, like, just, like, 15-minute talk so it was like uh and it was like a mixture of people like there's different people there's a lot of q and a's like dr ken was doing uh do like you know some like q and a you know type stuff with like kazmeyer and uh ed Cohen was in there at one one of those and then dave tate was in there one of those so it was like kind of a hodgepodge i didn't i really just like on the first day i was just I spent most of that time in like the training room, like in yeah. the training or nutrition. Cause I, I would just go and give the, you know, the 10 minute or the five minute when it was my time to do that for them. If it was a talk I wasn't interested in. So that was cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was some interesting stuff. Like I'm trying to, make, I, I like the, the velocity based training from, uh, Travis Mash. And I, I forget the other guy, guy's name, but he was I more on the science it? side. Was that yeah. he's at Miami? It was Dr. Yeah, Man. Brian Man. Yeah, Brian Man. Yeah, Dr. Man, yeah. So yeah, they're both uh, great. Yeah, I like I like that talk. It was kind of a mixture of science and uh application. Yeah, I'd say that was my favorite talk and, that I got the most out of. And then uh I I like listening to uh Kaz's stories, like you know, that's basically <laughs> what his thing he was telling stories about you know, certain meats and, you know, what he used to lift, some of his training stuff, and I thought that was pretty cool. I could listen and then to the whole seminar those guys. Kaz stories. Yeah. Yeah, what was it? <laughs> yeah. one? He yeah. was talking about warming up for deadlift? Yeah, he said, and I forget somebody, I forget what the question was, but he was like, oh, yeah, you know, I, you know, we didn't know. That was kind of like the premise of the talk almost was, uh, was like, we didn't know that we were doing too much or whatever, but he said he was doing – Three sets of 15, uh, high bar, like Olympic style squats with 300 kilos to warm up for his deadlift days. Oh, Jesus. And then he was <laughs> like, he said, uh, he's like, in his deadlift day would be, so it was like three sets of 15, you know, 300 kilos. And like the deadlift training would be three sets of five at 800. And then the next week would be 825. And then the next week would be like, or two sets of five at 825 and then the following week 
one set of five at, you know, 850 or whatever. And it was just like the numbers and kind of the, he was like, oh yeah, like, and then essentially in the next room, you would have somebody who was like, if you're doing more than, you know, 30 reps, it's, you know, junk volume. And then here's Kaz, like, oh yeah, we used to do 50 <laughs> sets of up and back work. I'm like, <laughs> that was kind of funny in that sense, but these stories were interesting. I, I think he told one story and I've heard it before about like tearing his hamstrings and adductors on the squats and one of the powerlifting meets and then having to like, you know, still deadlift for the, to win. And he did like seven, eight, nine to, you know, maintain, you know, whatever, maintain his lead with torn hamstrings and torn adductors. I thought that was kind of interesting. I always think that's a funny story, but, or interesting story. Yeah. Like torn hamstrings, torn adductors, and still did 700, 800, 900 on deadlift. <laughs> yeah, and then there's, of course, Those... the after-the-fact stuff. It's, what I always get out of all this stuff, it's not, this, it's not so much the talks. It's the let's go to dinner after, and, mm-hmm. like, that's where the real fun and the info comes from. But, uh, yeah, we just had a lot of laughs. We went out to dinner with Windler the second night, and Windler and Matt Rhodes, and got to know Matt a, a lot better. And nice. of course, we joked around a lot, but uh, <laughs> I spent way too I much on pizza. Out. But <laughs> I hang out then, and uh, actually, you know, talking to Jim about football was like <laughs> talking to him football stuff. I think he, I don't know, maybe he doesn't talk to have too many people that just bullshit about football. Oh, it definitely has been. Like, yeah. Especially on Saturday when we were going through like the highlight stuff. It was like, he was just super excited about that, yeah. which I, I appreciate because I don't talk to people about football right now either. So, yeah. And his team, they had, he had to rush out of there. His talk was Friday and he had to rush out of there and go to their first playoff game of the year. And his team was playing the one team that beat him this year in the regular season. I, I, I was wrong about that. I think they lost, they lost. A couple other games. Oh, okay. So they were like, that was one of the teams. It, what he was saying was they, is when they switched back to the, you know, basically running style offense, yeah. that was the only team that beat them when they did that. Yeah. And they ended up crushing they them like lost 42 to 12. Friday. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so come Saturday when there was in his element, man, he was happy. Oh, but he was still. So, yeah, you find him the day after a loss and it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, and they was just talking about the systems with them and just simplifying things. Of course, like, he had tons of questions about, like, power cleans and things like that. Do you guys do power cleans with your football people? And and he said, no. You know, he said, basically, I got 50-some kids, and he said, I have the choice. I can I can spend a month trying to teach these kids how to do a correct power clean, or we can just keep making them strong. And it's yeah. just, just how simple their program is. And down to a warm up and just how he's he's changed it over the years and how everything's on a time clock now where they have a certain amount of time to get their sets and reps in and things like that and the other kids hold them accountable. It's just hundred percent buy in also. And that's what we see a difference here. And I think you see a lot of it in Texas. Like the biggest difference between Kansas and like these power football states, Ohio, Texas and things like that, is uh in all year buy in by the kids and the parents, and then also 
you see like in where he's at an actual strength coach at high schools. Mm. And we don't have that here yet, except for maybe one or two schools. And there's a big difference there. And that's like people are like, well, how do you handle, you know, your wrestling kids that wrestle and play football? And, uh, he's like, well, if you're on London football, you're on London football, you know, wrestling second. So they're still coming to, you know, our, our weights classes and, and mm. things like that, no matter what. And the wrestling coaches just have to understand that. Like, it's like, it's, it's just like in college football. He's like, college football is what brings all the money to these programs. So <laughs> he said, football in Ohio is what brings people to the seats in, in sports. So it's just a hundred percent buy-in and they have the kids year round now. And, and now with, uh, they've taken over the middle school. So they've got it really nice. So basically they got three years in middle school where Jim's wife is getting the kids ready. And during that stage, it's basically teaching them not to kill themselves. (laughs) (laughs) That was a novel idea. Yeah. So, I mean, basically they spend three years just getting form down. Mm. And then by the time she hands them off to Jim at the high school level, they don't have to worry about that. They can just train them. You know, the, the form's down. There's also, there's also they, they have grade standards that are pretty high. So, like, think about even building those habits before they get to high school where it's like, you know, yeah. you have these high, higher expectations. Yeah. So, so, honestly, it's really cool, like, what they're, they're, they got going on up there. Yeah. And the whole city's just, and it's, I don't know, arguably it's probably easier when you're in a city the size of London compared to a bigger city like Kansas City yeah. or something. It's easy to get the whole town bought in, you know, mm-hmm. because yeah. there's only 35,000 the people there or whatever, yeah. you know. So, like, everybody well, knows Jim, but. Here, it's like, at least in Olathe, it's like you can basically just transfer schools, too, like almost like the transfer portal. and Yeah. And so it's like if there's – you know, a coach is like, you know, too hard on the X, Y, and Z. You just mm-hmm. leave and go yeah. to another school. It's, I mean, because I think it's just London High, and then the next school is a ways away, right? Yeah, it's like 40, 50 miles away is the next school. So you don't have a choice. Yeah. You know, you're going to London. Yeah, it's like. If you live there. <laughs> yeah. and no, like and they, I, Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and they, they seem like they're, you know, they're not too crazy hard on the kids like that. They really care about making sure they're doing well and getting better. And I even think Jim said something about like, yeah, we don't cut anyone, which I think is, you know, interesting as well coming from someone like that. So well, I don't think they can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can mention that, but. <laughs> yeah, Cause they have like 15 kids that have to play both ways. Oh, you know? yeah. So, I mean, it's such a small, like I've been to numerous of the games and you'll see like, there's 60 kids on the other sideline, and then there's Jim with his, like, 18 kids. It's like, oh, we're about to do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, of course, this talk starts off with this whole, you know, one of the other coaches asked him, he's like, how do you get these kids ready? What's your focus? And uh, basically his focus always is making his average person kick the shit out of their average person. Yeah. He said, if I can do that, we're going to win. Yeah. Um, because every team is going to have their – you know, one to three kids that are great. Uh, those, and those are great, but that's not going to win you the game. It's, it's making those other average kids on the field. Let's say there's three people on both sides of the ball that are awesome out of 22. So now you have 19 kids that are just average. And it's, he said, it's those that we concentrate on and bring them up 
uh, trying to raise their, basically they're raising their floor, you know, instead of raising their ceiling. Uh, and you see that a lot of times where, where schools will concentrate, the coaches and everybody concentrate on their stars. So you have a really high ceiling of three people and the average kid gets ignored, but man, they're still playing and they have a vital role in team sport. So if you're able to raise that floor up and that's what happens and that's what you see in a lot of London's games is the games are close or the, or even London's behind in the first half. But then due to the conditioning of his kids, Come second half, the other team's like, fuck, you know, these guys are, are rough. <laughs> oh, and that's mm. basically they play smash mouth football. That's what they do. It's like, that's all we can do. That's what we rely on is just strength and, and conditioning. And, uh, you know, it, it ends up working out in the second half usually. So, and just talked about they, they've done away with two aways. The minute he got there, two aways were done. But the reason they're able to get away with that, and he said the reason they had to do two aways, two days when they were younger is, Basically, you'd play football, and then football season's over, and you were done until next year. He mm. said, so come spring ball, you'd have a ton of kids out of shape. So to get them in shape in time for the season, let's say you have eight weeks to get them ready for their first game, you had to cram a shitload of stuff in there and try and get them in shape. And now he has them all year, so he's like, we don't have a need for two-a-days. Our kids are never out of shape. Uh, so we don't have to push them that far. So all practices are like, like 80% effort, you know, we never have to make them puke. I don't want anybody puking. So just a kind of a little bit of a change in philosophy from what we saw in the old days. I remember like when I played running laps, linemen running laps, yeah. running four laps. And, Holy shit. Oh. Come on, dude. I'm 320. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and things like that. But yeah. So. Oh, that's awesome. And they, you were famous. Like I texted Mike because they were Me? giving, they were, yeah, they were talking oh, about good. you. Doctor Man was talking about you in his talk. Oh, so, that's so nice. And uh, checks in the mail. Your, <laughs> yeah, one of your courses they were uh, was on sale for the weekend for Swiss. Yeah, yeah the, the nutrition uh, one. What the hell? The strength, strength. What courses are there? Stronger yeah. experts. Yes, they had a booth there. So stronger oh, cool. experts booth. And. Uh, I think they had all the courses on sale, 40% off or something like that for anybody yeah. who was at this. So that seemed pretty popular. And I talked to Dr. Mann about possibly getting him on again, which we have in the past, and he even remembered being on. Oh. So uh, we'll have to get a hold of him again. Yeah. And that was probably, I mean, of course I liked Windler's talks. I like Winning's talks, and but I've heard all of them. So yeah. <laughs> the, the most interesting <laughs> one for me was probably – Travis and, and, and Dr. Mann. So just listen to their work on the uh, velocity-based training. It just makes me want to buy a Tendo more unit again, but it's just putting up that money for those things. And, yeah, and they've got the new Tendo version that doesn't have the actual attachment that uses a laser. Yeah. So they've got some pretty – maybe that's Gym Aware. I can't remember. I think it's Gym Aware. Um, but, and then there's – was it Virtuo? I don't know. There's a bunch of them now that mm-hmm. appear to be – pretty decent and not nearly as expensive i mean i think the gym aware and the old school tendo are probably still the top ones if you're gonna do it all the time but yeah it's it's nice but and i think it's just <clears> also designed for running multiple people through in the database in the back end and yeah if it's just yourself like you don't need all of that stuff anyway you just need the the number and just the basic function of it 
Yeah, and something that's fairly accurate, which that has to be accurate. Yes. Yeah, you start getting into the super cheap ones and not so much. And uh, oh yeah, some of those are really horrible. Even some of the like just principles of like how to apply it. Yeah. You know, not necessarily like not even worrying so much about what weights on the bar, but. As a coach, at least in weightlifting, you can kind of see like how a bar is moving and like make some decisions. And that was actually one interesting, even Jim had talked about taking kids down from like a, you know, like a 200 some 205 pound weight and back down to like 135 and then still making a ton of progress. And I always find that, you know, you know, those kind of numbers very interesting because no one wants to hear them, number one, but just like, how light can you go and still make a ton of progress was, I mean, almost a theme for some of the. It was, it was, especially with your sport athletes. It's like, we're not, they're not powerlifters. We don't need to. And it's like, let's see how little we can go in intensity and still make progress and less injuries. So, yeah. And the, the fact that, you know, it's finally coming around, especially in sports. Like football has always been one of those sports where strength training was accepted. But like baseball, basketball, and things—that's new. You know, it always was the thought that oh, it's going to slow you down and make you muscle bound. And uh, now you're seeing all this new information come out that like the kids that are strength training are getting less injuries. So yeah. even less Tommy Johns and things like that just by, yep. you know, strength training and not just having that one stimulus of like all they do physically is pitch, which oh my god that leads to overuse injury. So go figures. But yeah, other night it was lots of driving and uh lots of shooting the shit. So uh, like I said, uh, we talked about it a little bit. We had uh Gabby and Sean came out, they were able to go train at the Lady FTS compound a few days. Oh, awesome. There. I bet they loved it. Oh they did. They had a blast. Yeah. Gabby was her usual self. Uh <laughs> always jumping and clapping. Uh, yeah, no matter what was going on, taking pictures <laughs> with everybody. <laughs> the other thing we wanted to address today was questions, because I put up a thing we were supposed to do a uh, a Q and A on our drive, which we never got around to. But uh, so we want to address that here. We had several people come on and give us some questions to shoot out. I figured what better time than to do it now? Mike can join in too. So Justin Umla. I had a question. He says, my boys are 11 and 14. They have started rift- lifting regularly with the starting strength program. We watch videos, go through each step, and coach each other if we see something. It's damn impressive how quickly they pick up most form cues, but can't figure out others. They're young. They're new. I understand totally. Oh, just sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They're young, they're new, I totally understand, but I was hoping for some direction on communicating better to them. For example, keeping the forearms vertical and the elbows less flared on the bench, or properly timing the hip bounce on a press. Just a heads up, we use a half-inch copper pipe for a bar on these lifts, weighs about 10 pounds. They nail squat and deadlift, uh, just some wires getting crossed somewhere on those other two. Uh, and then he... You guys are the balls. Thank you for your dedication over the years. I highly recommend you. Anyone who's listening uh, gets stuck listening about lifting. So basically it comes down to uh, he's having trouble with teaching them the bench and the press. 
So I'll let one of you guys start. I mean, I have some ideas on this, but. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I don't really, I don't bench the kids that much. I mean, personally, but if just in terms of coaching cues in general with kids, um, they don't really work that well. Their goal would be like holding positions, like have them hold positions with the weights so that way they like it gets ingrained in their in the neural pattern. So like for us we start with push ups. Like well at that age we'd be, you know, essentially working push ups. And I spend if I get kids kind of that age, it takes almost uh, and this is frustrating too, but it takes almost a year to get them, you know, doing a lot of them anyway, decent push ups. So um about holding each position and like just staying there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would, if, if I was doing that same setup, I would be doing that exact same thing at each position you feel is off, like at the top of the lift, hold it at halfway point through the lift, hold it, fix them, bottom of the lift, hold it, fix them. And like, I spend a lot more time, like hands on, like actually physically putting their, you know, elbows where I want them, mm-hmm. or that kind of stuff. I, I try to avoid, coaching cues with with kids for the most part and and just do that and get them to understand like the the rhythm of it and the actual positions so i would spend a lot of time with actually just pausing and holding those positions that you that you want to see as much as possible like like every single time at least the warm-up and do long but like don't be afraid of like the long like have them hold it for like 60 seconds and you know challenge them so that way it's kind of fun and they're, yep. you know, shaking or whatever. That's like my strategy with like most of the lifts with the exception of like, uh, the squat is, is a tough one, but like deadlift and back position, I have them do a lot of isometric stuff to like feel that position. Yeah. And what I've seen with new young kids or really anybody that's brand new to strength training, it's your bench and your press are much more all over the place at the beginning. And I think that's because just the amount of stabilizers and the size of those stabilizers on those two lifts, uh, they're much smaller. And just the motor pattern and learning of that, uh, because those compared to the squat and deadlift, you know, on those, usually your stabilizers are a lot bigger muscle groups, whereas on the bench and press, it's little tiny muscles in your shoulders. Uh, so you see this bar path going all over the place at the beginning, and that's very normal. And uh, it just takes time for that motor learning. But the easiest cue for me over the years to get elbows in the right position is not even coach it. I'll tell them, like, I want elbows in. But if you just get them to to, to lower the bar to the right position, it happens yeah. no matter what. So it's at the base of your sternum, like your xiphoid process. If you get them to lower the bar there, like, they have no choice but to tuck their elbows. Like, you can't flare out and touch where I want them to touch. So if we just memorize that and just keep – my big thing on, on bench for sure is, well, I like doing push-ups and just teach them a proper push-up. But we'll stick with the bar until that bar just doesn't go all over the place, which it always does on new kids. Like, it's, whoa, you know, it's wagging back and forth. And it's like, <laughs> holy shit, this is dangerous. Like, until they can do that a lot and just show control – uh 
we're not going up in weight. And, but that would be my thing is just teach them where you want them to touch or find a place on them. Cause it's going to vary a little bit, but it's going to be somewhere along the base of the sternum for each person. If you just get them to touch there, your elbows are going to be in the right position. If they lower there comfortably, they're not going to flare way out and, and be able to touch there. Cause then they'll dump the bar. Uh, that's what I would point towards. And then I don't know the, uh, the press, uh, I'm not even sure I would train it. I mean, he's talking about properly timing the hip bounce on the press. I don't even teach that. You know, that's yeah. Rip does a little weird thing on his press. The only thing I would try and teach is just, you know, getting the lats involved in the press. And everything else is just tight. So I wouldn't worry so much about a a hip drive in the press unless you've, like the press is out of the Olympics and that's where Rip kind of feeds his stuff from is the old days when the Olympic press was still in and leaning back. And I don't see a benefit for that for athletes. Uh, we just want them to press overhead uh, in a safe manner. So, and just keep, keep your legs, keep your glutes and keep your core involved, you know, activated. But I, I don't think I would waste the time trying to teach some hip drive for press because that's not what we're worried about with that move with those athletes. And your your kids are probably not looking to be, you know, a, a world level athlete in the press. If they are, they can. <laughs> that that's ten years down the road, anyways. So you got plenty of time to to learn that. Let's just learn a proper good military press form. So that would be where I'd shoot towards and. I don't know. I mean, I can tell you that I think you're smart and like Rip takes a lot of shit for his programs. But one thing I've seen, I can spot a starting strength disciple the minute they walk <laughs> in the door and start moving. And yeah. there are a lot of things I don't agree with on Rip's form. But one thing I like about it is it's super easy to tweak and make efficient. Like anybody that's yeah. done that, it takes you 15 minutes to like, okay, now you, you're moving this form. Let's tweak this, tweak this, tweak this. You're good. It's really easy to get them to very efficient form. So I think it's a good choice in the program you're doing. Um, just be open in years from now when they're, when they're doing well. Like don't be as closed minded as Rip is and think that this is <laughs> the only way. Be open to some form tweaks later on. Once they're a little, once they start reaching that intermediate stage. But I think his yep. program is great for what it's titled, starting strength. So getting people started. I don't know, Mike, you got anything? Yeah, no, I agree with all that. I don't train a lot of kids anymore, but I mean, I would just echo the same thing. Like for bench press, I'm a huge fan of just external cues, like just literally tell their brain what you want it to execute. I think internal cues of, you know, try to overly feel your lat and feel everything. There's a time and a place for it, but I think especially with younger kids and performance outcomes, just be really clear what you want them to do. Like you're saying, Phil, tap them on their chest. Okay, lower the bar to here. Mm -hmm. Okay, yep, good. Like that'll fix just a ton of stuff. And normally kids are pretty responsive to cues in general. Yeah. Um, it, it looks like you said the motor control is what usually looks funny, but they're usually pretty good at executing it. But, and then probably a little bit unconventional. Like I would also make sure you're doing you know, gymnastic type stuff and just a lot of other movement variability. 
So I think that we'll transfer to making them better at their lifts and just better movement overall. So I see now kids don't get a lot of other movement. And the Russians kind of showed this years ago with their athletes where they would have them do, you know, gymnastics and all sorts of stuff, even mm-hmm. if they were going to be dedicated lifting athletes later in life or, or go into sports. The last part I would probably add is I'm biased towards using something like RPR, Reflexive Performance Reset, where they can even just do it lightly on themselves to make sure they're getting the right activation patterns to start. A handful of kids I've done that with, like, they don't even need a lot to do that. But usually that goes a long way to cleaning up uh, motor patterns. Um, and they're usually pretty plastic, pretty easy to fix compared to adults. Mm-hmm. So just... I think you're definitely 100% on the right track and getting to do some some quality movements going to pay off huge. Yeah. Well, like you hinted at there, I mean, it's people love giving the cues that you can give to an advanced level power lifter. Yes. Like, flex your, you know, retract your scapula and flex your lats. It's like this kid doesn't have lats. He can't even what? feel that. What are you that. saying? <laughs> yeah. Like he literally can't do it because uh, he doesn't even know he has those. So you're yeah. trying to use these What's cues the that advanced lifters can use, but they just, they just don't know how to flex them. Yeah, because they have none right now. Um, you know, basically. So actually, yeah. I mean, the thing that helped me the the most not most because uh, I've been coaching kids for a while, but that at least got me thinking about it was when I went to go like basically the the Chinese weightlifting seminar and just being around some of the lifters who teach stuff that don't speak English. And in some ways, I was kind of realizing, like, the not actually saying anything and just, you know, using, like, really just putting them in the right position was more effective because, like, you think yeah. less. And then the, like, for kids, it's like they don't, I mean, like, hey, your rotator cuff. Well, okay. Okay, dude. Like, <laughs> even, like, you know, your, your quads or hamstrings, it's like, yeah, you can teach them that, but, like, that's one thing. Then teach them to like fire that. I mean, you're crazy if you think that yeah. that's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. But like watching how the Chinese coaches interact with people, even though they, you know, didn't speak English or even if you follow some of their, you know, Instagram accounts, there's some good ones out there where they're like teaching the kids the lifts. Like, and they're not beating the kids with this stick, by the way. So just before I say that, but so they, they really are using a, a stick and they're like tapping them. And like they have, the, they're holding the bar in a position and they're like tapping their back to get in the right spot and they're mm-hmm. tapping their shoulders to get in the right spot. Yeah. And they're like kind of putting them there and they're not like saying a ton, but they are like physically putting them in the right position and then practicing the rep. And I've yeah. found that to be so much better for most of my coaching is like try to minimize the amount of like actual verbal cues that you have to use. Cause the other thing too is confidence. Like, mm-hmm. Cues can break kids' confidence, but like people's confidence in general, because then they just start feeling like I'm doing everything wrong if you keep cueing stuff. Mm-hmm. And but if you put them in that position and then you just keep putting them there and not do a whole lot, like they also build confidence in doing the rep themselves, which I find incredibly important. Yeah, well, it's the same thing as like the movement assessments. Uh, you know, you take you take a kid through one of those and like tell them how horribly they failed, even though nobody passes them like great cooks think like nobody passes the fucking thing. But if you tell a kid that like, Oh, you're horrible at this. Like you just defeated the shit out of them. You know, <laughs> you just, they sound like they're a walking nightmare. And 
you start loading up like 25 different cues, and that's what I tell people like when they first come in. It's like I'm going to undercoach you a bit. I, I could tell you like the 47 things that need to be done to do a squat correctly, but then you're going to think about those 47 things, and you're going to move like shit. So we're going to fix one thing at a time. Uh, you know, I'm going to watch you move and pick out the biggest, most glaring, unsafe thing you're doing, and let's fix that one thing and make that habit and and then slowly fix the others by just putting you in correct positions. And, like, you're not – you can't squat. Like, you literally can't squat and not have your quads fire. If you're bending at the fucking knee, you know, your quads are going to work. <laughs> Uh, so I don't need to tell you like, you know, activate your quads and your you know, this and that. If I just put you in the right positions, that's going to happen by default and it's going to make more sense to a kid that doesn't know, like we can't expect kids to know anatomy and movement patterns. It, it's just, they don't. So, yeah. All right. We can move on to the next one. It's uh, a question on Zercher squats. Thoughts on Zercher squats for athletes over back squats, especially younger high school athletes. Anybody want to touch that first? Um, uh, I mean, for me, it's just like, I don't really teach any Zercher squats to like hardly anyone. So yeah. I don't have much experience with that aspect. I can go through. I I go goblet squat, double kettlebell, mm-hmm. front squat, front squat, back squat. That's my order. Yeah. So, like, what do you think? Yeah, I love Jarrell's order. I 100% yeah. agree. Like, I can't remember the unless they were going to be a power lifter that I taught them a back squat first. Even programming with clients, like I had most of the time would do a front squat, goblet squat, zercher squat before a back squat. So I would say it depends on the the context in what type of program those kids are going to be in the future potentially. So I would say from a pure movement standpoint, if I have an extremely limited amount of time, I would probably teach them a Zercher squat. I would use a light axle bar to start though, so there's less pressure in your elbows. But if you know they want to go to a D1 school and they want to play football or whatever Mm -hmm. like we're talking about, and you've got – three years with them or something, then it's completely different. Like yeah. you, you probably will have to teach them how to do that. So they're better prepared for what they want to do in the future. So it, it also depends on your skill level in terms of coaching. I think yeah. coaching a Zercher squat is quite a bit easier than a back squat, even though yeah. they look pretty similar. Um, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I think using, there's a place, there's a time and place to use it on your younger high school athletes and that's on people that like it's very usual now that you'll bring a kid in or it's very unusual that you bring a kid in you put a bar on their back and they can squat it right it's like the minute they put it on their back they want a good morning it and not mm-hmm. sit their ass down whereas the minute we shift that load to the front it it tends to work right so less places yeah, to go <laughs> yeah so vi zercher squat goblet squat front squat so I'll definitely lean towards that first. A lot of my kids, I'll just go to a, like you said, a kettlebell zerger squat or like a 15-bound bar front squat. And let's nail that pattern. And if we do that for a month, you find that, okay, now I put that bar on their back and they move right uh, just from learning that pattern. So, I mean, yeah, I think it's useful uh, as a teaching tool. 
in a, in a movement tool to then graduate them later. I mean, my problems with Zercher squats is, uh, it's very limiting on what you can hold, you know, in the crook of your arms and not just be uncomfortable as shit. Whereas mm-hmm. I could put that same load on your back and it's not that uncomfortable. So, um, I would use it as a teaching tool for sure as a stepping stone to greater things, but, um, I wouldn't use that as like, I can't see me using that as like, here's what we're going to do for four years. We're really going to push this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, type of thing. So that's where I would lean towards on those. That was from Neil Grant. Uh, I'm going to mess his name up. Fanor, F- F- I will go with. There's a J in there, and I'm guessing it's silent. So Silent J. I, I will say <laughs> I was not, not directly Zercher, but I have started doing a lot more sandbag stuff that's like I would say kind of covers the same amount of ground like that would be yeah and I do that with kids too and sandbag squats I have actually liked a ton as well that's more like high school kids that I get but yeah like the sandbag squat I think is more effective for what they would see on a field or something like that mm-hmm. it's just like the loading is you know what I mean like you you're limited by the loading. You have to make these giant jumps and stuff, but, um, sandbag squat and then sandbag front squat are some of like the two more effective things I've done that are like even similar to that. Yeah. And, and part of it is just like my opinion of like just in sports in general, you're everything's in front of you. Mm-hmm. So, and, like even after this weekend, I talked to Brian Carroll for a second about deadlifts and like MMA stuff. In in so many words, it was kind of like don't, like just don't, because <laughs> to be a good deadlifter is like your back gets really stiff, right? Like your the goal is your yeah. lower back to be yeah. stiff. But when you're playing sports, like you want your spine to be strong, but like you know somewhat mobile, right? Like so you want you don't want to like stiffen up so much. And a, the Zercher, I think, would maybe have an impact. Like it would be maybe a little bit better on that. I, I just always felt like, and I've only taught Zercher a few times back when I was at the, when I was working for a CrossFit gym. And I just remember thinking, like, it was almost as hard to coach as like a more technical lift. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So it was like, I would be spending a lot of time like teaching the nuances of that before loading. Whereas like, I want to get kids something that they can go hard at pretty quick. Yeah. Simplify things. I mean, that's exactly like what when was talking about. Plus with Zercher, there's also a pain factor that you don't have on like a heavy fucking Zercher in the crook of your arms. It's, it's not comfortable. <laughs> and that's something they have to get used to. So, um, here's an interesting one. Should I teach hook grip? As soon as they get form down on deadlift or wait until they need it. Thoughts? I mean, if you're just using it for the deadlift, no. Yeah. Like that's, I don't think so. If you're doing weightlifting, yeah, they should learn it yeah. the first day they touch a bar. But Yep. And that's the same. Like, I generally don't teach my kids or help my people in general, like, hook grip if they just want a deadlift now like Jarrell said if they want to the sooner the better if they are going to be an Olympic weightlifter 
because they need to pass that uncomfortable stage, and the only way to do that is just hook grip. Uh, so, I mean, if you're just going to have them deadlift, I don't do it. I go double overhand as far as we can, yeah. and usually that's going to be a while on a new person. Like, it's very rare that a brand-new person that their grip limits their lifting ability. Almost never. Uh, yeah, uh, unless they just somehow never use their hands. There's hand, a few but, freaks. Yeah, but... But most of the time, that's a year or two down the road when the grip's really going to start limiting things. So I would push it as far as you can double overhand because that's going to, you know, enhance their grip strength. And hook grip is basically a way to to negate grip strength, you know. So yeah. you're not helping their grip strength at all by, by hook gripping. Um, so I would push them. And then if they're just deadlifting to get a little stronger, I teach the mixed grip and just teach them how to do it properly. Most of your injuries on a mixed grip is because somebody's bending their arm. So as long as you keep your arm extended and straight at the, at the elbow, the, the chances of a bicep blown is near nothing. And it's usually people that have really short, short levers, short arms that, that have that issue with bending it. Um, usually your long arm athletes don't, but just teach them to lock out their triceps and gauge their lats and pick it up. Uh, and once you switch to, to, uh, a, a mixed grip or a hook grip and, but other than that, no matter what, I, I always push double overhand as far as we can, even in my own training on a daily basis. As I'm warming up, I go as far as I can double overhand, uh, and try and push that further as training goes on. I try and get as strong as I can with both hands over and not hook gripping because I want my grip to be strong. Uh, and I would continue that through the entire career of a lifter and only use a mixed grip or a hook grip for a power lifter type person when it's needed to get the training stimulus. But and the Olympic weightlifters just fucking never not hook grip. Just do it. <laughs> like if you're doing fucking rows, you're hook gripping. Just whatever it is to make you super comfortable with that because you have to do it. Like there's – I've had arguments with this with kids. It's like, well, if you want to be a weightlifter, you just have to hook grip. It's, it's not a question. It's kind of like wearing lifting shoes. Mm-hmm. Like there aren't weightlifters that don't wear a heeled shoe. There aren't weightlifters that don't hook grip. Watch the Olympics. Not one of them is not doing it. You know, So it's just a mandatory thing in the sport. Uh, and it's not mandatory in in lifting weights outside of that. It's become more popular in powerlifting, but it's definitely not needed. It's I'd say still to to this day, the mixed grip is much more prevalent than a hook grip. So. Hook grip is good in, up to like when you get into like this 500 to like we'll say 500 to like 700 pound range is fine. Like for deadlifts, I mean, obviously below that you could still do it, but it's not necessary even below that. Like your grip, you can get your most people can get their grip strong enough to get up to about 500 on the deadlift. Then it gets really tough. Mm-hmm. You have to do either a mixed grip, and then the hook grip can be helpful in that range. I don't even say up to 700. Like basically that 500 range, you can do, and it looks like it looks cool because you're doing double overhand, mm-hmm. and you know what I mean. Yeah. But after that, it's like that weight is really digging on your thumb. Big time. And yeah. it's, it's really tough to like, I mean, you could actually cause some like forearm, elbow, thumb problems by getting too crazy with hook grip on that stuff. 
and then the training is like you you'd have to train with straps more often than not mm-hmm. when you like with weightlifting we use straps for like everything and i haven't seen yeah. a grip issue from that but um and if you need to build grip and you're a hook gripping deadlift type person like farmers carries and stuff can yeah. kind of take the place if you need that but yeah it's it will get tough on your thumb when you get into that like right around above that 500 range no matter what the weight class is that's when it would start getting really problematic yeah Looks like me, after I blew my second bicep, I changed to hook grip for a while in the recovery process. And I pushed it as far as I could, and I just couldn't go over 650 in hook grip. I've got big palms and short thumbs, and it, man, it fucking hurt. It just, <laughs> and then at that point, it just started slipping out. My thumb would, which would just pop out, oh. uh, at, above 650. So that's when, but at that point in the healing process, I was good. And then I changed, I backed the weight back down, changed the next grip, and worked back up. And I was fine. So, yeah. But. yeah. One other tip I would say for if you have people doing a mixed grip, even on lightweight, and they keep bending their, their elbow, and you give them the cues, and you've shown them the video and everything else, uh, put their arm in the straight position in the bottom of a deadlift, and then take a little piece of kinesio tape, just tape from, like, their mid-tricep to their forearm. Mm-hmm. And so now when they flex their arm, they get a lot more of that proprioceptive feedback. Yeah, and a lot of times that can fix people as just a training tool. Then obviously you'll you'll take it off at some point. Then, yeah. And oddly enough, it's those people that have that tendency to bend their arms. It's usually like about the time the bar is going to cross the knee. Yep. And it's that always the underhand, and yep. they'll bend that arm back, and it's like stop. You're gonna yeah. You look at it like blow oh my God, your freaking so bicep. <laughs> yeah, and that's what people don't understand. It's like. Like, you're not going to blow your bicep doing curls and shit. It's when the arm gets straightened, yeah, when it's bent, load. and it's forced straight under eccentric load. Yeah. Yep. Um, Tires. Yeah. Yep. That's where I blew my second one on. I was being stupid with a tire. And I had my arm bent a little bit. But, so, it's just realizing that. And it's just lock those. That's what I would point you towards is just teach your kids to lock your, their arms. You know, take that time now today when they're starting to like your arms have to be they're just ropes attached to the bar they are not moving the load i'm sorry i don't care how strong you are you're not going to curl what you can deadlift so don't try um but i don't know we'll end it there it's been an hour so hopefully got some good info we had a blast at the swiss i hope more people make it next year it's a very worthwhile thing and if not you can always go on i think they're still doing it where you can uh, you'll be able to stream all the videos soon enough and, and buy that. And you can just watch them anytime. I'm a member of that. I joined that Swiss thing. They started that when COVID happened. They oh, put, nice. Everything's accessible and you can go back and like, I can go back and watch the first Swiss. Yeah. Um, I bought some of the older ones for sure. So, um, yeah, go watch that. There's a lot of good information that gets passed out, but. So they know about same time next year, I assume. I guess. I don't know. I'm going to talk to Dave and. See if they're doing it again at some point. I figured we better give him like three months to decide if he wants to. It's a big endeavor, I'm sure, Ooh, I to get imagine. all this stuff together. So it's like anybody else. Right when it's over, they're like, I'm never doing it again. Never, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you give them three months, they're like, okay, yeah, let's do yeah, it. Again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you never want to ask right after it's done. 
No, no. <laughs> that's just like a meet. A lot of few times people are, once they're hired, like, oh, okay, I'm done. I'm not competing anymore. And then you give them <laughs> two months and they got the itch again. All right, I'll go again. <laughs> so, but everybody have a wonderful weekend. Mike's down there in the sun and the wind, and me and Jarrell are up here in the early snow. Ooh. So, yeah, it's stupid. It was like 80, and then it's, oh, guess what? Kansas, we're going to fucking snow on you two days oh, later. Geez. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, everybody have a good time. Hope you enjoyed the show. We will talk to you later. See ya.